How do you understand your employer brand? You can aim to win awards. You can launch a new career site. You can activate beautiful campaigns. You can spend a ton of money on making everything shiny. But how do you measure how you're actually performing in the eyes of your candidates, employees, and alumni? We have developed the Employer Brand Index to help practitioners understand their company's reputation as an employer. It gives you a quantitative and qualitative understanding of what talent thinks, presented in an easily understandable score and actionable report. Learn more at employerbrandindex.co. It's Jorgen Sandberg here with the Employer Branding Podcast by LinkHumans, London's Employer Branding Agency. This week, something slightly different. Let me ask you this. How long do you expect to stay in your employer branding role? How long do you expect to stay in your career? What retirement age have you got your eyes on? I might uh, have bad news for you because today's guest is going to talk all about the 100-year life, which uh, kind of means we're going to need to stay in our jobs a little bit longer than uh, you might have expected. Really interesting chat today uh, based on uh, a talk I saw at Indeed Interactive earlier this year. So it was so interesting, I thought uh, I had to get this uh, person on the podcast. So let's start the show. Hey, Emma, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Great. So welcome to the podcast. Please let our listeners know who you are and what you do. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm Emma Birchall. I work as an advisor to companies around the future of work. So what that means is I help companies understand the trends that are shaping what work looks like in their organization, who their workforce will be, and what their workforce will want from them. So how that deal is shifting between employees, freelancers, contingent workers, uh, and the organizations that they add value to. Great. Tell us about the 100-year life and what impact that might have on employment. Yes. So this is one of my favorite topics to talk about. The 100-year life is all about the fact that we'll be living for longer and therefore working for longer. So if we look at the data about what's happened to life expectancy over the last few generations, it's quite astounding. We can now expect a baby born in Western Europe to live to the age of 107, which is an incredible, incredible length of time. So we know that people born today are going to far outlive their parents and grandparents. And actually, that's also true for many of us in the current workforce. We can expect to live into our 80s and 90s with higher probability than perhaps our parents or grandparents did. So what's that got to do with work and organizations? Well, when we extend our careers and our lives to that 100-year point, we start to see that the model we've used to structure our life starts to break. That model is the three-stage life. So if we think about our parents' and grandparents' generations, people tended to live in three nice discrete stages. They got educated until their late teens or perhaps even early 20s if they were lucky. And then as a big group, they moved into work together. And then when they were in their 50s, perhaps early 60s, they would all retire together as one big cohort as well. And that model worked really well when people's life expectancy was around 75. But what we can see now is that if we're expecting to retire at the age of 60, 65, but live to around 95, maybe even 100, we have a one-to-one ratio of our work working life to our retired life. 
immediately alarm bells sound for me in terms of how on earth will we afford that financially? And that's often where people's minds go to first. How can we possibly afford to be retired for as many years as we're working? How would we build up that savings? And the answer is, it's very unlikely that anyone would be able to do that, particularly given the current circumstances for people in the workforce. So what does that mean? Well, we have to completely reimagine the stages we have in our life. What would it look like if we broke those up, if we reallocated our time? The first point I'd say within this is that we know now that right retirement is a big block towards the end of our life for 30 or so years won't work. So how do we reallocate that leisure time throughout our longer life? Likewise, work won't necessarily be one big discrete block in the middle of our lives from 20 to 75, 80 if we're expecting to work into older age. Much more, it will be interspersed with education, it'll be interspersed with leisure time and actually be something that we have, perhaps we have a 10-year career and then six months of where we take some time out to relearn, reskill. And that feeds straight into the third block at the very beginning of our life, which is education. We've relied on the first 15 to 20 years of our lives to be really intensively educated and hoped that that education would sustain us throughout our careers. And that again worked okay when careers were perhaps more stable and when our working lives were 30 to 35 year sprints rather than potentially 60 year marathons. We now need to take that educational block and break that up as well so we get educated over and over again throughout our lives. So rather than those three big blocks, what I'd like people to think about is threads that they weave throughout their lives. Education, work and retirement become threads that you weave throughout your life and you create different stages based on what you need at a particular point. What does this mean for organizations though? Because that sounds very individual. Well, organizations have a huge role in enabling that. So when I go into organizations to talk about this subject, one of the first questions I ask is, what would it look like to be 80 or 75 and work in your company? Often I meet lots of blank expressions or worse, it would be too expensive. We don't know how we'd afford someone who'd stayed in the company and progressed that long. So that's the first question to think about. What are the stereotypes we have around who our workforce will be? What if we had someone who was 75 or 80, had great skills to offer and wanted to work with us? How could we make that work and enable that longer working life? Likewise, what if one of your high performers said, you know what, I've been working for 15 years. I've got another at least 20 or 30 years of work ahead of me. I want to take a year out. Even that for a lot of organizations is still very difficult, the sabbatical model. And again, education and learning. How as organizations, can we build that into our brand proposition and communicate clearly to our employees and our prospective employees that we will help them learn in the way they need to to stay skilled for their longer working life so this is great you're both asking and answering the questions uh, which means i can retire from um, being a podcast host early (laughs) (laughs) tell me about your grandma i remember seeing her up on a slide what was that oh yes (laughs) so i like to start most of my presentations on this topic uh, with my own grandmother who turned 100 in november last year and she was born around 100 years ago in burma or myanmar in southeast asia when she was born life expectancy for her birth birth cohort was around 46 years old. So she more than doubled her life expectancy. And if I did the same, I'd live to be about 172, I think. (laughs) But luckily, the data is not suggesting that. Uh, But I've always been very pleased to have a 100-year life role model in my family. Of course, the way she did it was very different. She had 14 children, and that's how she uh, has kept herself retired and in good health and well-supported. And that's probably not my plan. Uh, But yes, certainly a very inspiring person for me to have in my life and very pertinent for the research. And it was a great photo you showed up on stage once um, with uh, basically all her children, grandchildren, and perhaps grand- yes. grandchildren. 
Yeah. yeah. So she has, well, there's full 72 at last count grandchildren. So <laughs> yeah, she's got a lot. But actually, while her, you know, her unintended plan of, of having 14 children and a massive social support network that she created for herself was very innovative. The other parts of how she's stayed healthy and happy for her long life have been her constant thirst for learning. So uh-huh. she, yeah, so she passed her driving test at the age of 76. Um, it took, I think, three or four attempts, but she's a very persistent woman. Uh, she passed her GCSE in German when she was in her mid-60s because one of her daughters moved to Germany and, and therefore her grandchildren spoke German, so she learned that. And she's currently learning French. She also became a line dancing teacher in her late 80s. So I think that's what I've been really inspired by from my, my nana, that she has always had that curiosity and that thirst for learning. And I think that's so important for all of us as we plan out our 100 year lives and what will keep us happy and fulfilled in that time. From an organization point of view, how are they responding to people living longer and how does it actually impact the employer brand? I think the first thing that organizations are doing from my work is rethinking careers. So being very clear in their communication to prospective employees and to their current workforce, that they are rethinking that career structure, that linear model that forces people on this up or out trajectory. So many of the companies I work with are in professional services, in law firms, who follow very traditional career paths. And what they're finding is that more and more people want to work with them, want to add value to what they do, but don't necessarily want to do it on that traditional way. So the first thing is rethinking what a career looks like in their organization and being open to creating new and different career tracks and allowing for that personalization as much as they can. I think the second thing that companies are better at doing today than perhaps 10 years ago is being places of learning. So we work with Westpac, one of the Australian banks, and they've created an amazing learning platform called Learning Bank, whereby employees can exchange skills. It has the kind of traditional elements of massive online open courses where employees can go on and and learn a particular skill. But crucially, what they've done to ensure that there's engagement and that people actually take up those learning courses, which is the real challenge around any learning platform, is enabled people to teach each other so to share their skills. If I have a particular skill that, that you might like to learn, that I can go on there and be a teacher as well as a learner. Redesigning career paths, being much more aware of how people learn and building learning into their proposition. And I think the third one that organizations are starting to think about in their employer branding, but we need to do a lot more work on, is around positioning themselves as places of health. So saying to people, mm. come and work with us. We will ensure that you maintain your vitality. We won't burn you out at the age of 35, knowing that you have to work along and productive career into your 70s. We will support you in building that vitality and making the various elements of your life work well together. Uh, We know that people have a lot more going on outside of their lives because we have commitments in all different respects, children, elderly parents, grandparents even. We also want to be active in our hobbies. We want to have many elements of our identity. So organizations supporting that vitality and that well-being in their employees. But I think that's the one that probably requires a bit more work from what I've seen from uh, many companies. You mentioned uh, MOOCs there and online learning and so on. And one of the challenges with that is, of course, that um, it's great in theory. There's loads of courses out Mm -hmm. there, but then actually taking the time to do it and uh, doing the quiz at the end and all these things instead of just watching a video. How do we go about incentivizing employees to take the time uh, to take action to learn? 
Great question. And it's so true. For every massive online open course, there's an amazing statistic about how many people dropped out along the journey. We have so many different demands on our time and encouraging people and enabling them to, to make that time and, and learn the core content that they need to learn to improve their work or to just take on a new skill is so important. When we run online learning, which we do as part of a couple of the programs you run with the future of work, we do two things. We give people data. We love to hear about ourselves. We love to know in a quantified way where, where we are, where our risk areas lie. So if you give people data, that gives them a more firm ground from which to move. And I think that's the big challenge with a lot of the areas that we're looking at at the moment around skills in managing virtual teams, for example, or building a diverse network. These all seem like quite abstract concepts. They're very important to the future of work and, and the kind of work I do with companies. But people often struggle to know, well, how good am I at leading a virtual team? Or how good am I at building a diverse network. It's difficult to get data on that. So the first thing we do is we have a diagnostic that provides people with data. It says, this is where you are and here are your risk areas. That's a huge call to action when we see it in front of us, us on a page. The second thing is building community around learning. Learning is doesn't have to be an individual activity. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. And particularly when it comes to adding learning into your day and making time for it in a busy schedule, the more you can build commitments with others, the better. So, uh, again, going back to that Westpac example that really inspired us, how, how much can I make my learning tie into the learning of someone else? How much can I ensure that it's peer-to-peer, -peer, that we're doing something together, that it also builds something else? Uh, one very random example from my own life is that uh, I've been determined to learn to swim for about five years now. And I'm finally going to do it because I found a friend who will join me on Saturday mornings at a swimming class. And I know that if I don't show up, there are repercussions. <laughs> so the more we can make commitment uh, around our learning, and the more we can bring other people into it, the more likely we are to do it. Yes, I do Duolingo every day. And oh, now right. they've introduced these leaderboards. So it's like, if, you're, if you haven't done it for a day, you lose your spot in the leaderboard. It's like creating <laughs> a little community of other people there. All right, so uh, how can companies successfully attract and retain employees who represent multiple generations? Anything from first jobbers up to people in their 70s, how can they stay attractive? About five or six years ago, for some reason, we started to believe that generations were distinctly different. They had incredibly different demands. My view is that it happened because millennials came onto the scene at exactly the same time that SurveyMonkey became available. And suddenly it was very easy to get lots of data on this particular group. And they were very good at expressing themselves on social media. So they were able to express what they thought wanted in a very visible and accessible format. And I think what happened as a result of that is we started to build some generational stereotypes and started thinking that millennials were different in good and bad ways. And they were different to Gen X who also had their own particular version of the world. When we look at the research, there's very little to suggest there are distinct differences between generations in terms of what people want and need from work. They may engage slightly differently with, um, they may be more likely to be on social media, perhaps if they're in the graduate cohort, but it doesn't tend to translate into wanting or needing anything particularly different about work, more that they are able to voice what they want uh, more loudly. So I think my first message around that would be to let go of any generational stereotypes or assumptions we have. When we did some research on work-life balance within one of the professional services companies, we found that millennials really wanted work-life balance, just like Generation X, just like the baby boomers. <laughs> it was exactly yeah. the same. So yeah, first of all, do away with those generational stereotypes. I think the second point is organizations now have amazing tools available to them to move from assumptions and hypotheses around what people at different stages or uh, profiles of their career want to actually just get that 
that data from them, ask them. A lot of the work I do with organizations involves crowdsourcing. So we'll launch a conversation in an organization of say 10,000 people, we'll bring everyone online and we'll say, right, let's talk about careers in your organization. Or let's talk about work-life balance. What would great look like? What do you need in order to enable this? What gets in the way? What one difference could we make to your work and life for it to be just so much better, so much easier? And then what we, what we do from that is that we understand the truth about what's going on in the organization, the truth about what people want and need from their work. And then that can really inform employer branding because those are exactly the people that those companies are trying to attract into the organization. They're current high performers. They want more of those guys. So that then informs a much more evidence-based campaign and much more evidence-based marketing. Lots of uh, employer brand managers are listening to this right now. What uh, would be your top tips for them? And also, are there any pitfalls that they should avoid? So I think I'll just re- reiterate the pitfall of making assumptions. We're in such mm-hmm. a post-assumption world. We have so much data available to us. We have crowdsourcing tools. We have uh, lots and lots of ways of understanding what people really want and enabling them to voice what they really want. So that's my first tip is don't assume, listen. Uh, and if you need help understanding how to listen, by all means, ask me. There are so many different ways that we do this within, our, within organizations we work with. And when you really listen you start to find out what's really going on and what people really want rather than the headlines or the assumptions or the generalist research that you might be reading. I think the second is to think about how can your organization be committed to and share externally that you're a place of learning. So become a place of learning and then really share that with people. I think whatever generation you are in the workforce, whatever role you're doing, we all know that learning will be crucial to staying employable. So how do you communicate to people that we will help you learn, we'll make time for you to learn in your, in, in your working day uh, and you'll, work, you'll learn with other peers in the, in the um, team? And then how do, I, how do we promote ourselves as places of health? So in the context of a longer working life, how do we communicate to potential employees and to current employees that while you're here, we will help you maintain your vitality. And here's how we do it. And here's examples of role models in the organization who are successful, doing great work, and are also thriving. So my final question is, where can our listeners learn more about the work that you do? And also, where can they find you online and connect with yourself? I'm online at LinkedIn, so Emma Birchall, and uh, Hotspots Movement should pop up there. And uh, through our website and also on Twitter, Emma Birchall 27. I'd be delighted to hear a bit from anyone who'd like any more information uh, about the 100 Year Life or all the future of work more generally. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today, Emma. No, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Okay, there you have it. If you enjoyed this episode, first of all, make sure you reach out and thank Emma. Number two, feel free to subscribe to the podcast. It's available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, all the other places. And number three, highly optional, but if you really enjoyed this particular episode or the podcast in general, feel free to leave a review on one of these platforms and it really helps us to reach more people like yourself and if you're interested in measuring your company's reputation as an employer to try to understand how you're able to uh, provide for the 100 year life perhaps check out employerbrandindex.co so that's our approach to measuring employer brand you could also ping me at jorgenathlinkhumans.com and i'm happy to talk it through with you That is it for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in and look forward to catching up next time. Hey!
Probably the most interesting thing is that I do improvisational theatre. 